I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Welcome to another enlightening episode of the Executive Exchange, where we bring you the brightest minds of Chicago's leadership scene. Today, we have a special treat for you as we delve into the future of philanthropy. Join us as we engage in a thought-provoking conversation with Julia Stash, former president of the MacArthur Foundation, and Cecilia Conrad, CEO of Lever for Change. Together, they uncover the transformative power of philanthropy, offering unique insights through the lens of Lever for Change. Recorded in front of a live audience on April 13th, 2023, get ready to be inspired by their wisdom and perspectives. Well, good afternoon. I'm going to let you in on a little tiny secret. I love working with Cecilia. <laughs> but one of the things that I love even more is introducing her to people. She's my hero. Now, is it too weird if I were going to say that I want to be her when I grow up? <laughs> I decided no, it probably was. I so say that about you. <laughs> OK. But maybe in the next life, I could be her. Think about this. She's a distinguished academic with deep philanthropical experience but she's fearless. And so when we asked her to take on the role of entrepreneur with everything that that means for vision and market savvy and product development and risk and agility and charisma, she didn't hesitate. She said yes, and she jumped right in to the role of founder and disruptor. So she's somebody you definitely should know. So we're gonna talk for a little while and then we are going to invite you to ask us anything. Maybe not anything, but <laughs> relatively anything. So let's set the stage, though, for our conversation about disruption with just a few comments about philanthropy today. Everybody in this room, I look around here, many of you I know, you know philanthropy is big business. From the donations that each of us make on behalf of the things that we are passionate about, to families, to the growing phenomenon of uh, donor-advised funds, to legacy foundations like MacArthur, but Ford and Rockefeller, to newer foundations and uh, family offices that are expressing the wishes of a living donor. And, and these last two are really fueled by the enormous wealth that is controversial on its own. But philanthropy is controversial on, you know, on the good side, it's an essential part of virtually every solution to the giant problems, America, the world, community, family, everything. It is the, the basic and fundamental source of support for the social sector, but it has fewer resources than, you know, than government and the corporate sector, but it's free of the profit imperative of, uh, you know, of the business sector or the, uh, the political dynamics of the government sector, which is really an advantage for innovation. At the same time, and now this is the not so good perception of philanthropy, it's seen as elite, it's seen as opaque, it's seen as capricious, it's seen as arrogant and overly directive. And I look around here and I bet there's a few of you who, for whom some of those words might resonate. 
Even worse, it's been accused of laundering uh, reputations and, uh, you know, and fortunes that could have been derived from ill-gotten gains. And sometimes people say it's even harmful to democracy because it is exercising uh, you know, untoward uh, political and policy influence outside of the electoral process, which is supposed to reflect the people's will. So uh, what am I missing from, <laughs> from the context within which Lever for Change was birthed? I'm thinking too about the aspiration gap. Yes, I mean, one of the other, I think, pieces of it is that we sometimes say, it's popular to say that philanthropy is society's risk capital, but we probably don't take enough risk as philanthropists, that there's, there's a, a tendency to be kind of risk averse. The size of the grant that's given out by traditional foundations, the average size is $50,000, and the grants tend to be for just a very short period of time, maybe 18 months. And if you think about the scale of some of the problems we confront as a society, you really aren't going to get very far with $50,000 over 18 months. Um, and then the other part of it too is that the decisions tend to be made in a kind of closed way. Um, the, one of the things that's interesting in the traditional foundations now, particularly those without a, a living donor, there is a board and so there is some representation but particularly in some of the newer forms of philanthropy, the decision making is even more concentrated than it's been in the past. It might be the, the, the family members, which isn't necessarily going to be reflective of society overall. So I think those are two kinds of issues that may contribute to some of the concerns we're hearing. So I mentioned something that is called the aspiration gap. I mean, when we talk about the giant wealth that's out there, some of it not supported by uh, an institutional structure or not even fully realized. Talk a little bit about what we've learned about ultra high net worth individuals and where they want to play in the charitable arena. Yes. So one of the, the, the good things is that there are many people out there who've expressed um, a desire to give away their wealth for, to support improving society writ large. Um, we know all know about the pledgers, but there are many also who haven't signed the pledge. But what's a little bit concerning is that the amount that's flowing out. Most of the pledgers have said they want to give away half of their wealth before they die. Uh, they're giving away about 4%. They're earning 8%. So it's, they're, not, they're falling behind. <laughs> uh, and, and why is that? Well, in, in some of what we're learning and what others have learned is, that, first of all, there's a form of risk aversion about giving away money that it's, it's a puzzle to me, it's a puzzle to some behavioral scientists because it's very different from the same risk aversion about investing, right? It, it's the amount of information, people are afraid of making a mistake. Some of it is because it can be very public, so it's a, a reputational risk, but some of it has to do with the fact that these are people who are, um, by and large, you know, really smart and have really deep knowledge of the business they're engaged in, and they don't have time or resources to become as deeply knowledgeable about some of what might be their philanthropic interest. And so it's almost like a brain paralysis. I can't make a decision because I don't know for sure that I know what I'm doing. Um, and there's a reluctance to build an infrastructure, to build a bureaucracy, to create a foundation as we would have seen in the past. Um, so those things are ways in which it's sort of 
leads to what's called the aspiration gap, the difference between what people say they want to give away and what they're actually giving away. So that is full of cross currents and contradictions and maybe some opportunities. So into all of that, we said, let's create a company. Lever for we change. did that, Lever for Change. What's the origin story? So Lever for Change really goes back to 100 and Change, which was MacArthur's initiative where we said, tell us what you would do at $100 million. We did this global open call. We didn't define a topic. We didn't constrict it to geography. We even said it was open to for-profit and non-profit organizations. Um, and that open call taught us a lot of things. But I'm going to turn for a moment because one might ask, well, what made you do that? And Julia was, would always say it was an expression of our humility. OK. <laughs> I think one of the things that is a frequent criticism of philanthropy is that it communicates that it knows the contours of problems and how to solve them. And each foundation says, here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in economic mobility. I'm interested in homelessness. I care only about food insecurity. I care about maternal mortality in Ghana, or whatever it is. And I actually felt that that was a hothouse, and that there were too many people, too many issues about which we knew nothing. And so wouldn't it be a good thing to do to take our resources, our influence, our networks, and open it up, open ourselves up to supporting the aspirations of others. And so that was the genesis of $100 million. And just a tiny little aside, when out of the blue I suggested it to our board members in an executive session, I said, why don't we give away $100 million every three years? And so expecting fully for the board to say, all right, please do a paper, the, the pros, <laughs> the cons, and come back in about eight months. They said, yes, let's do it. And so that kind of bold risk-taking, uh, I actually miss. Yeah. But, but the fact is that it did arise from a sense of how can we be so arrogant to think that we know what the problems are and we know what the solutions are? And that was the genesis mm -hmm. of it. And so we designed this process intended to be open and to bring voices in from outside of the foundation. We, first of all, gave complete liberty to the organizations to tell us what they would do. And then we impaneled, and some of you may have even participated, looking around the room, a, a panel of outsiders, outside independent voices, experts in different fields and domains, to read those proposals and to give feedback and to guide our choice of what grant we would make. So it was this exciting experiment that worked out really well. We've done two of them now. The first one, Sesame Workshop in the International Rescue Committee. There is a television show in Arabic. Ahilan Sinston, Welcome Sesame, that wouldn't exist but for this particular uh, initiative. And it's what we learned that kind of inspired Lever for Change. The first thing we learned is if you open the door like that and you give organizations the liberty and the agency to define what you want to do, they're going to do, you get a lot of good ideas. You get ideas that you wouldn't have thought of. I don't think we would have thought of an early childhood intervention in the Syrian refugee region without that open call. You get ideas. And, that, and those ideas are worth getting out to others. And that's the second thing we learned, is that other funders were interested 
in what we had uncovered through this open call, because doing an open call is, is still unusual. Usually there's an invitation-only process. So I remember a funder called me up and said, are you really doing an open call in any discipline? I said, yes. I said, well, are you going to share what you get? Because we would really like to know what would come in if we did an open call. So that presented an opportunity. Those two observations combined with what we just talked about, this observation of the aspiration gap, that maybe we could help those donors who want to give away their money, but are held up by the fact that they can't find what they want to fund, that they don't feel like they have a trustworthy source for great projects. That's what led us to create Lever for Change. Yeah, but what does it do? So <laughs> this, is, this is actually, we have, we have been trying to, like, okay, how do you do your elevator pitch for Lever for Change? Because what we do is kind of complicated. But the best analogy I can, I've found so far is that we're sort of a broker. What we do is that we identify donors, philanthropists, sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's small family foundations, sometimes it's institutions like Kellogg, uh, who, wanna, who are willing to make a bold investment in social change. And we match them up with organizations, projects, teams, great ideas that can take that big money and put it to work for real impact. So that's our essence of our business. And we do that in a couple of ways. First, we run open calls, challenges, competitions, if you will. We insist that each one of the donors who works with us commits at least $10 million to even begin our conversation. We run those open calls the same way we did 100 and Change. We impanel ex-outsiders to help review the proposals, to give us feedback on them, and those opinions help to guide the donor's selection of a project. But we also recognize that there's going to be many more ideas than the original sponsor of that open call is going to fund. We work at Lever for Change to promote those ideas with other funders. We also provide a kind of platform, what we call our Bold Solutions Network, for those organizations to engage with each other and to have learning opportunities. So we are building a long-term relationship with those who have participated in one of our challenges and, and risen to the top of that process. We have been pretty successful at doing that. We, we have a goal of trying to match whatever the original donor committed in terms of extra funds. I'm excited to say that we have hit that goal for all but two of the challenges, and one of them is about to hit it, I think, maybe even hit it today, I'm waiting to hear. Um, and it's, it's exciting that, in fact, we've created kind of a secondary market where one didn't exist. You kind of keep hearing economics language in my, I was an economics professor, so. I think one of the things that is so special about it is that we are so intentional in trying to undermine the sort of winner-take-all notion of a, of a competition by saying, yes, there's a significant award, but there is value in the entire set of proposals. So let's see if we can demonstrate that value, market it, so that as many organizations as possible feel the value add of participating. So um, anyway, let's talk about the business model a little bit. It's not philanthropy. Uh, I like to call it a values-driven customer service organization with philanthropy as its product. So what are those values? 
So we have core values that guide our work. And the first is this idea of openness and inclusivity. We are trying to guide a kind of form of philanthropy and to encourage the donors who work with us uh, to not decide that they're the smartest people in the room, <laughs> to come in with an open mind about how the problem they're interested in might best be solved, to engage outsiders independent experts, members of the communities where these projects are going to be implemented, in guiding them as to what it is that might work and to helping to assess what are the best ideas that come through. So we're asking them to be open about what the strategy might be, open to who the solvers might be. Um, we, we really push to define the topic that you're going to work on as broadly as possible so as not to constrain the solution set. We're also emphasize transparency because we think that's part of creating kind of a level playing field. So every one of our challenges, we, we produce a rubric, we announce what that rubric is, we, you can see who's going to be on the evaluation panel. We really emphasize the fact that, that you know what this process will be and we will give you feedback about why you didn't advance in it, which is also something that is unfortunately not, not typical. Um, and then we're emphasizing, one of the reasons why we're doing this, one of the reasons why we're putting so much emphasis on this open call aspect is that you know, philanthropy has a history of not actually distributing its dollars equitably across different groups of society, across different regions of society. And some of that is linked to the fact that we have relied on invitation-only processes. So it helps to be connected. It helps to be part of a network. It depends on what school you went to and who you, who you were roommates with sometimes as to whether you get access to even the opportunity to put forth your great ideas. So we feel that there's a real importance here in creating space and creating a pathway for those whose ideas might be overlooked uh, for those who may not have gone to the right schools, for those who are, um, have some problem that no one's really even thought about yet, to have the space to uplift those and get those in front of donors and get it in front of the philanthropic community. So we have a big emphasis on thinking about equity at that level. In addition, we've really pushed with the organizations who apply the Lever for Change challenges since the very beginning, really going back to 100 and change, that they have to talk, we have to make sure that those organizations themselves are creating feedback loops for their communities that they're serving to be able to give some feedback on, on how the work is going. We insist that they have authentic engagement with communities of interest. And it's been really fun sort of figuring out how do you, how do you test that? How do you know whether that's true and, and how do you document that? But I think it's been an important part of our value system. So I think an interesting nuance about the authentic engagement with the communities is also converging with the notion that it isn't engagement, it's representation from the communities. So that's why there's a particular focus on organizations whose leaders and boards and staff are, you know, proximate. They bring lived experience to the, uh, you know, to the task of tackling the challenge. Yeah, and the other thing that I'll just mention that sometimes takes people by surprise on this authentic engagement is that we really emphasize also including in that those who might stand to lose if a project is successful or gets implemented. In the, one of the cases in the first 100 and change, one of our, our finalists was a group that was going to, was focused on shifting care for 
orphans and children without parents to, from institutional care to family-based care. And they're working largely in countries in the global south where there's a, there's a, there are institutions, there are orphanages. And so the question was, are you going to talk to the people who are running those institutions to kind of understand where your, what obstacles might lie in your path, to understand how you might engage them positively in the process. So it's just a really important part of what we've emphasized. Cecilia knows that I often cringe when we use the word solutions. I mean, solution sounds done, fixed, wrestled to the ground, but when you look at the, the issues and the topics you know, that came in through 100 and Change or even the 12 or so specific topics that have been the passion of the donors, these are things that people would say today intractable. Cannot imagine a day, with, a day in history without that issue. So, where is the lever for change in the middle of the, uh, you know, sort of incremental change, transformational change, short-term impact, long-term system change? Where, where, where is lever in the middle of all that? So lever change is in the middle of all that. That's the best way of describing where we are. We, we're, we, we tend to, um, we work with our individual donor to kind of identify the space in which they want to occupy. And, but one of the things that I think, I want to go back to your comment about our battle about solutions. I, I think there are problems that can be solved. I, I, I believe that. When I talk about what a solution is, though, I, I think a little bit, we were just talking about the community solutions, which was the most recent 100 and change um, recipient, which is their goal is to accelerate an end to homelessness in U.S. cities. And I think that's one of those problems where most of us would go, yeah, yeah, you're going to do that, right? The way it's defined, though, when you kind of dig into it, is that they've defined what they call functional zero. And I sort of like this, functional zero homelessness. And that is, it doesn't mean that there won't be homeless people on the streets. It means that the experience should be brief. And so I think about that in the context of other kinds of problems that are out there. Um, I think of categories of solutions. So there are things that I call the magic pill, um, where there's, there's a drug you can take or a vaccine you can take, and as long as it's been taken, oh gosh, I should, shouldn't have said vaccine. <laughs> but I, I think about uh, one, of the, the, uh, one of our earlier, you know, earlier projects, that there's disease that can be treated if you have the treatment, if you get the treatment to the, to the individual. So there's a logistical problem, there's a distribution problem, and it doesn't mean no one will ever get it again, but it means that we should be able to address it quickly and move on from there. So there's solved, there are problems out there that just for the need of resources at scale could really kind of advance the solution to that. Then there are problems where the progress may be more incremental and you, you, you sort of hope that there's a tipping point or perhaps if you make a small change here, if you wait long enough, it sort of has a catalytic impact, almost like the, the dominoes happen quickly, but slow-moving dominoes, imagine that. So there are problems like that where what we end up doing is helping to support really kind of a demonstration. Like, here is this different way. I'll use an example from one of our early challenges, the Economic Opportunity Challenge, um, and I'm, 
I don't know, is Perscolis in the audience? Yes, okay. It's the a grantee for the Economic Opportunity Challenge. It is a model of providing training, workforce training, in technology-rich jobs that is working. And with the grant that they got from the Economic Opportunity Challenge and from other grants that they've gotten, because we've, we've seen some leverage there, uh, they've been able to really increase the numbers of people who are being served by their projects and increase the cities where they're operating. And what one hopes is that if you've demonstrated a model that will work, other people will see it, policymakers will see it, that it could have eventually an adoption that gets wider and, and be, is able to scale because it's more widely adopted through that kind of, of process. And then there are solutions that are far more complex. And I mentioned the functional zero example, but I'm going to go back to it for a moment because this is a, a solution that involves working with changing the ways communities approach homelessness. It's kind of a combination of a high-tech, low-tech. High-tech in that it's trying to implement the latest kind of data analysis techniques and emphasizing tracking data, but it's low-tech because the essential part of that data is what's called by-name data. You need to know the names of every person who is unhoused. And you need to understand and connect all of the services that they have been, uh, that they have had access to and identify where the gaps are so that the community can start to uh, fill those and address those. It's a process that is working. It's working in particular populations. It's also a population at a time approach, mostly starting with veterans and then moving to other chronically homeless. But it's, it's starting to work. So it, it's, it's, I think it requires sometimes patient capital. And we talk about philanthropy as risk capital, but sometimes philanthropy also has to take risk and be patient about when the payoff is going to happen. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So I'm going to ask this group to join us in celebrating the fact that we just reached the $1 billion milestone. We've got, we, I hope too, if you'll see people from my team in the audience, this was a real team effort. And let me just say a little bit about what that means because it's partly what gets me excited. We're actually at 1.3 right now, so this is great. Um, what, that, what that constitutes are two avenues. One is there, as I've talked before, there are these donors who commit an award to one of our challenges. And so about half of that billion is from direct commitments that a donor has made and they've made that award. The other half has come from the work getting those projects and supporting those projects as they get themselves in front of other donors in hopes of unlocking more capital. And that's what's so encouraging to me, is that it does seem like that there is an appetite uh, among donors who maybe wouldn't, weren't going to sponsor a challenge, but who are interested in finding these pre-vetted ideas that have have got, gotten stronger through this participation in a process where they've gotten feedback from all of these different units. Um, and so it's just very encouraging and we're hoping to do lots more. What's the next goal? 
We've, we have set a new target for ourselves that we hope to hit 2.5 billion by uh, the end of 2025. We keep it like, is it the end of 2025, the middle of 20, sometime in 2025, we hope to hit 2.5 billion uh, in terms of, of philanthropic dollars that we've influenced, that we've helped to move. We're really careful, because one of the things Julia said earlier, we're not the philanthropy, it's not our money. You know, we're, you know, sometimes people calling, I want some of that, I, I don't have any, sorry, I'm actually a nonprofit. I'm gonna be going out and asking for investments in our organization as well. Uh, but it is, it's come both from the promotion activities we've done, it's come from the organizations frequently tell us the feedback that they got from the application they submitted, that they use that feedback to really improve their case for support. And sometimes have gone back to earlier funders who've said, oh gee, you know, we never thought to ask you what you would do with this much money, and now we're excited. So I just think it's a, it's a model of data sharing as well that we're hoping to spread, and it is starting to spread across philanthropy. So of course one of the things that startups are always counseled to do is to focus on one thing and really do it right. But you look across our portfolio, it's not one thing. It's not one product, it's not one issue. What's, what are some of the issues, what are the issues and why is it a good thing? Yeah, so we are, we're issue agnostic by and large. We have, and it, it's kind of fun, I imagine a little bit of what we're doing is like being a journalist where you get to do a deep dive in some topic for a while and you start to feel like, oh, I know this topic. You really probably don't know it completely, but, but um, we started with economic, one of our first were economic opportunity and the Chicago Prize, which I know some of you are familiar with. We helped to manage the first one of those. Um, we have worked on climate, looking at reducing carbon emissions in building transportation and energy, and there's a project now uh, that is um, World Wildlife Federation that's looking at thermal energy in industry and, and kind of creating the mechanisms to make that happen and unfold. We have done a challenge on durable futures for refugees, which this one is one of my favorites to talk about. Uh, this is a challenge, a, a couple that, uh, who was the initial anchors that committed a $10 million award. We narrowed the group down to five finalists. All five finalists have gotten significant funding in the millions. And so we started at 10 million and we're now over 25 million that has gone into this effort. And their grantee is a group called the Refugee, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna get the RLO, I'm gonna get my acronym wrong, but it's a coalition of five refugee-led organizations from around the globe who are for the really for the first time putting together refugee voices to have a seat at the important policy tables, to have a seat at the UN. In addition, each one of their organizations is doing work in their countries to make sure that refugees have access to the kind of resources that international treaties say that they're supposed to have access to. That was one of the grantees that got um, 10 million from this. In addition, though, there was another $10 million award that went to a group called Village Enterprises. It was in collaboration with Mercy Corps to do work with, uh, in refugee communities in different parts of, uh, particularly in Africa, to help refugees become small business people, to serve not only the needs of the refugee communities that they're embedded in, but also of the nearby communities who can benefit from those services. And uh, that's another one that has really kind of gained traction. So that's a particularly exciting one. We've done the um, Racial Equity 2030 with Kellogg, just five awards around the globe, 
One of them is a Chicago-based organization, uh, and the, it's a, a youth-based organization that's working on dealing with community, youth-driven solutions to mental health issues here in conjunction with the Lurie, Lurie Children's Hospital. Stronger Democracy also has a Chicago uh, representation. City Bureau's Documenters Network was one of the grantees uh, in that particular challenge. So you can see it's been a range of topics. I think I've actually probably missed one. In the, oh, Lone Star. How could I forget that? I'm a Texan. <laughs> the Lone Star Prize, which is focused on um, looking at uh, opportunities to improve the quality of life for Texans in either health or workforce development our um, environment, and the grantee was actually a really interesting project sponsored by the Meadows Health Institute that's to work on mental health services and incorporating it into primary care. And in the two years that they've been in operation, they've expanded, now there are 12 healthcare systems in Texas who have been Milton Health screening and support services as part of their primary care. But in addition, and this is important because Texas has a very high percentage of uninsured, they have transported a model from India of community health workers to do community health mental health services for those who are not served by existing healthcare systems. And that's the kind of thing that kind of happens when you, when you, you do an open call and you find out about the good ideas that are every place that could be transferred. Actually, every time I hear about this, I'm inspired. I mean, just. I am so inspired, but I think the serendipity in the mixed portfolio is what creates the excitement in the possibilities of the secondary market. And so people with all kinds of interests can go there and find something to be inspired by. But I could also be inspired by our most recent open call. Tell the folks a little bit about that. Yes, so most recently, uh, our, our one of our open calls is Yield Giving. Yield Giving is an open call that is looking uh, for community-led, community-focused organizations with budgets between one and five million, uh, who, and as an open call, there will be $251 million grants that will be made. Um, the challenge is sponsored by McKinsey Scott, and it's a pathway for organizations to come to the attention of this grant-making opportunity that might have been missed or might otherwise not. It's just recognizing the power of doing this kind of open call effort. So that's going to be exciting, but I can imagine that we will actually have a couple of other things going on during the year. We will have other things, so please, you should, you should if you want to keep track of us, you can sign up for our newsletter, I'm sure Mark will say, uh, on our website. Also, if you want to be inspired, we have on our website a database that is the database of the Bold Solutions Network members. Um, we, used to, we used to call, so we used to do something we call hope scrolling. Just if you need some optimism about the possibilities that there are to really solve problems in the world, go and visit, spend some time, uh, perhaps find something that you want to support, even in a small way. They would welcome gifts that aren't $10 million as well. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think, where will I use those words? Hope scrolling. <laughs> I, I, um, 
so, okay, we've been talking about philanthropy and a little bit of the disruptive uh, sort of values and practices of Lever for Change. Um, we have to remember, though, that philanthropy is only one of the players. And every single one of the really big solution requires government and it requires the business sector. And just because philanthropy doesn't have the power, the resources, nothing to do anything on its own. So that's why all of these problems, as I say, require all of us at the table. So I was thinking, how can uh, a corporation benefit from some of the things that uh, you know, Lever for Change has to offer, particularly in this moment when corporations are you know, in the throes of the expanding definition of purpose for a corporation? You know, rather than just focusing on the shareholders, shouldn't we be at the table for, with our business practices and our resources for solving these problems? Mm -hmm. Now, I was thinking we haven't really focused on uh, businesses as a client sort of uh, segment. Maybe Lego, uh, Lego Foundation from De Denmark? Yes. Denmark yes. would be the closest. As in Legos, yeah. Yeah, Legos, yes. <laughs> but think about it. Is there anything that Lever could offer to corporations that are looking for ways to expand their own impact, not necessarily through their foundation, mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, expressing their business values. Yeah, we have, we have not foreclosed the possibility of working with a corporation who wanted to do an open collar challenge. Um, as with our other donors, one of the things that's, that's important is that donors who work with us uh, regardless of who they are, are actually ceding a bit of control. And so there has to be a willingness to do that uh, to this process, to this open, transparent process, and to this panel of, of judges. Uh, but I think there are other opportunities as well. First of all, there's that database we have. And, and when particularly corporations, even in their CRSR work or through their foundations, are looking for great ideas, we know that some of them are already using our database. I was just looking at the Lone Star Prize at some of the projects in there that were more environmentally focused and found that several of the donors that have supported that work are corporate funders, corporate donors overall. We have had projects submitted through our challenges that are partnerships where corporations have been part of it. I spoke earlier about the magic pill when I got into trouble about mentioning vaccines, but it was really based on the fact that that one of our early projects that came to us was to cure a disease called night blindness, uh, which is common, I'm sorry, river blindness, not night blindness. Night blindness is a vitamin A, it's river blindness. Um, and there is a, a, a drug that if administered every year for four years will make people immune to it. So that particular drug is supplied by the drug manufacturer for free as part of this project. And we've seen things like that quite a bit in some of the collaborations that have come forward through our process. Uh, it's also the case, and I will just put that out there, that we are always looking for evaluators, people who have expertise in some area and would be interested in helping us by serving on one of our evaluation panels. So I'll open that invitation to people in the room that you can reach out and we'll be sure and say that. that we aren't always trying to match expertise with the topic. That's right. That we're I, we're frequent. We're looking for people who are critical readers, critical thinkers, and who will give careful and thoughtful feedback to the organizations. 
So you've been talking about all these good ideas. I, there was a fabulous question in here that said, what's the most outrageous idea, good or bad, <laughs> that you've encountered in an open call? Oh, I may have to look around the room for some help from a couple of, of teammates. You know, when, when, when we did the first 100 and change, we were hoping for some really wild and crazy ideas. Um, and there were, there were some submissions that didn't get past our administrative review. One of them just had, for their video, they had scenes from Star Trek. <laughs> uh, we also had one that was proposed uh, buying an island and populating it with women with PhDs and men with master's degrees. And it wasn't clear to me at all what the goal was. <laughs> or, you know, how would you evaluate, what would be the metrics to evaluate whether it had succeeded. It was an odd. Um, there, was some, there was some odd ones. One of the things that, that we've learned through this, though, is that most of what we receive have at the, you know, there is a good idea in there. Some of them are underdeveloped for, you know, the amount of money we're talking about. But that there, and, and, and one of the fun things is sometimes we can, we try to create our challenges so it, it's actually not very difficult if you've applied to one and you have and you fit another to apply again. I've been able to track projects a bit and see how they've evolved. And so sometimes it's really exciting because you see something that the very first time you saw it, it was, eh. In one case, there's a grantee that out of the um, Equality Can't Wait, Women's Power and Influence in the US, that I can trace through three challenges and it's really impressive how they took the feedback and how they took more steps and the evidence they had. So, um, but, but I haven't had nearly as many wild and crazy as I've wanted. And, and when people start to complain, as, as they will, about how they did in the challenge, I just keep reminding myself that, that, that all of them have this goal. They, that why they're so upset is that they're convinced that if we could give them the funding, they could really solve this problem or make a difference. So, so even maybe the island one, I don't know. <laughs> I was, they weren't clear, they didn't, you know, one of the biggest issues that comes out is where people have a problem they define and then they have a solution and they seem to have nothing to do with each other. I, I don't know what that problem was, I don't remember. I don't know, Jeff, do you remember? <laughs> I'm thinking that you need a pseudonym to tweet about the weird proposals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A blog. A blog. And I would subscribe immediately. So <laughs> I did mention that, um, you know, the scale of the problems and the complexity really require the all hands on deck. But I did not talk about uh, the academic sector as a contributor to solutions. And so there's a great question here. It says, it seems the many prominent higher ed universities in Chicago can do more to use their resources to address the social problems we face. Can they do more? Talk a little bit about uh, yeah, that. Yeah, so I actually, about once a year now, I go to the, the Case Corporate Foundation Relations Officers event for that is a nationwide university grant officer kind of convening. We have, we have many of our challenges are open to universities, and we've had terrific proposals that have come through from universities, um, including just recently there was a finalist, uh, University of New Mexico, Project ECHO, uh, one of the grantees, for the Lego Build a World of Play Challenge is Johns Hopkins University Center for Indigenous Health. So there have been universities that have come through one of our, our challenges and received major grants. Uh, what I have found quite a bit, and one of the mantras I've pushed, and I, and I think I'm making progress, I feel like I'm seeing it come through, 
is that we frequently get these submissions from universities that are very, they're sort of, they're not, they think that it's implementable, but it's not there yet. And let's face it, because that's not what those of us in the academy tend to be specialists in. And then we get submissions from organizations that don't know that there's evidence that could inform what they're doing because they're not necessarily tied in or connected and they don't have someone who can connect it to them. So we've been kind of pushing for more collaborations between the NGOs, the nonprofit organizations, and universities. And we're starting to see that show up in our, our pool of applicants. And so I think that's one way. I know there are some universities who've actually launched kind of projects to do that. They've started to think about the way that they think about business incubation, because that's also they're hoping they'll create rich people who will give to their endowment. But in addition to that, they've now creating incubation spaces to give the faculty who have ideas that can really have an impact to connect with the organizations who are skilled at the implementation and the action. It seems it's sort of a moment in higher ed with so many institutions saying, how can we be more connected to the world and have an impact? So maybe there are some, uh, you know, some connections that we can help our local universities make. Um, okay, I'm going to read this. I'm, I'm worried about it. It has the words chatbot in it, so let me. Uh, <laughs> it says, are there ideas you haven't received that you would love to see? You know, AI, chatbot. We have gotten early ideas that imagined using AI, but they sort of reflected um, how thin the knowledge is of AI and how it works. So the, you know, they didn't recognize the amount of data. This is a great example of where you want university organization more collaboration. Uh, but I'm expecting we're going to see more of those in the future. We're actually kind of testing potentially a challenge that may be around AI for social good in 2024. So sign up for that newsletter and, and you'll, you'll hear some more. Uh, there are spaces that I wish we had more inform, you know, activity in. Uh, some of the spaces involve disaster resilience, uh, aging. We've, I've, you know, we've had now one on early childhood. I'm kind of hopeful that we may have something on aging down the, down the road. And, and how can we, because this is a global issue of the burgeoning aging population. Uh, so there, there are spaces that need to be explored still. And I'm hoping to find donors who are interested in doing that with us. One of the things that we might not have been fully clear about is captured in a question here, which is after a program is launched or receives the funding, um, does Lever for Change or the sponsor continue to support the relationship and to monitor the progress? Talk a little bit about yeah. partnerships post-award. So the, the way that we have approached it so far is that our work helps the sponsor identify a project and then that relationship is between the donor and the organization. And the donor usually has defined a sort of expectations about uh, reporting. Part of our application process is the organizations are asked to define for themselves milestones. And so the donors will rely on those milestones to monitor progress. Uh, However, we also have a relationship with the organizations because we have this Bold Solutions Network. And so they're still kind of part of our family. 
Uh, we once a year survey the members of our Bold Solutions Network to learn what's going on and what's, what, what's happening with them. And so we have that relationship too. And we're trying to think about how to coordinate that more effectively, whether we should take more of a role in the post-grant activities than we have historically. So that's still really kind of a work in progress. But there is most of the, the organizations, part of our application is that you have to have a plan for evaluating and monitoring your work. And the donors expect that. And we get, usually the organizations send us their reports as well, which is helpful because we're now getting to be able to tell some stories about what's happened with those grants. So I'm going to take one more question here, and then I'm going to wrap it up and invite you to hope scroll, I guess. <laughs> um, and so have you been approached by other geographic areas of the US or the world that might want to replicate what Lever for Change is doing? Um, are you hopeful that others could do this? Or are we still in the, you know, the early disruption phase and not the replication phase? Well, let me see. I'm going to take that in a couple pieces. First of all, we have had, we've seen others do these big open calls. Uh, inspired by us in some cases. They've said to us, we were inspired. So um, many years ago, the Macquarie Foundation, Macquarie Corporation out of Australia decided to celebrate their 50th anniversary by an open call, and they called us and said, so how do you do this? And we gave them kind of, we share information readily uh, for free, so they, they followed in our footsteps. Uh, and did that for theirs. Um, we have seen others try to set up a similar kind of process, but it's not been the intermediary role that we have played so far, so I haven't seen another intermediary emerge that's quite like ours. There are other entities that do run open calls and challenges. Um, in fact, if any of you, if you remember this book, Longitude, which is about one of the sort of first big global competitions around technology, it was for clock that would keep accurate time even at sea. I'm oversimplifying here. I'm sure somebody can make it uh, clearer. Uh, but that group who ran that, uh, this group called Nesta, that's out of Great Britain, uh, they do slightly different things than us. And we're sort of special in our work on the secondary market. Hardly anyone does anything quite like that. So I, we also work, I, I should just add, we don't restrict ourselves to the US. Our, many of our open calls have been global. Many of our awardees are global. We um, are in conversation right now about with a donor who's based outside the US, and the work will be based outside the US, about um, running a challenge and helping them do that. This is the advantage of, of sort of not being topically focused or geographically focused. What we're bringing is the expertise in how to do what I like to call a humane open call. Uh, and we, we bring in the experts in the specific topic area to be parts of our evaluation panel and to be technical advisors and so on. So in principle, we could work someplace else. So I want to thank you for letting us share the Lever for Change story with you. I think we're really still very much at the beginning, but very optimistic that this permutation of, no, this convergence of a business model with a philanthropic model actually can make the kind of difference that we all want to be responsible for in our lives. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. 
audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.